Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. So, if you recall, last episode we were having a wonderful conversation with Dr. Faika Zanjani, who is an associate professor in the Department of Behavioral and Community Health at University of Maryland's School of Public Health. It was a fascinating conversation about mental health and substance abuse in adult and geriatric populations slash communities. And uh, this week, we're actually going to continue that conversation because we didn't get a chance to fit it all into one episode. So I hope you enjoy. It's very fascinating. We're going to be doing a bit more, uh, talking about uh, her studies a bit more. Um, So, yeah. Uh, And without any further stalling and ums and ahs, let's just get right into it. So enjoy this episode. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at theimposterpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find everything on the website. All right, everyone, enjoy the episode. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we, I mean the general public, if it's something that oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature you are. I want to move on now to your 2013 paper, which was titled Alcohol Effects on Cognitive Change in Middle-Aged and Older Adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was really interesting for a few different reasons. In the study, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you and your colleagues were looking at data of alcohol consumption patterns and cognitive uh, data from 571 adults. Yes, that was the sort of the Seattle Longitudinal Study, actually. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And they they were aged between 45 and 64 years old. Mm-hmm. And you were looking at data from a seven-year period. And I was, I was wondering, actually, uh, can you just talk a little bit about the methodologies for this paper? Because... It was really interesting what metrics and predictors you were using. Yeah. So so I've replicated this paper a couple of times now, and we keep finding the same thing. But the whole idea here was this kind of a discovery. This is something I did after my graduate work. I went back after doing oh, my cool. postdoc, and I said, look. So it's the PIs of that, the Seattle Longitudinal Study are Drs. Warner Shia and Sherry Willis, and they're my dissertation advisors. And I left, and... I saw them at the Gerontological Society Conference, and I was like, look, I've been interested in alcohol, and I know we have alcohol because I, I looked at it while I was there, and I really want to look at cognitive outcomes while I'm there. I just want to see, like, what are the longitudinal trends of alcohol on cognition? Because when I was there, again, you could only do so much. Mm-hmm. I just looked at alcohol, and I looked at alcohol change and predictors, but I didn't really look at the outcomes. I was just kind of interested on what kind of happens when people drink alcohol and I learn about risky drink profiles versus abusive and realize that there is a there's a variation in adults it doesn't have to be 
about dependence or alcoholics. It could just be the normal human being and how much they drink. So I like went back and I said, can I just explore this data? So the Seattle Longitudinal Study is actually based in cognitive aging. Like they are a cognitive aging um, study. And I came in there looking at health behavior, so I was kind of an anomaly. So this was my <laughs> opportunity to actually kind of connect with the core of the of the issue. And I was right. like, I just want to kind of figure this out. So they have they have all these domains. They have like spatial ability, executive functioning, memory, verbal ability, numerical ability. So I wanted to look at how alcohol influences a change in those abilities in older adults or in, in aging, so over time. Right. So we threw all those variables in the cognitive. So the cognitive domains was my outcome, which is the dependent variable, and the independent variable is alcohol. These are all community dwellings. So for the most part, we assumed nobody was dependent or alcoholics. Everybody was a community drinker at different levels. So we, we separated the drinkers to abstainers. Uh, people that don't drink at all, right. to the, I call it the healthy, but it's also called the moderate drinkers, but one to seven drinks a week. So no more than one drink a day. The idea is after age 65 to drink more, no more than one a day. But what we're finding is actually the benefits are across the lifespan. Mm. So even if I did the middle age, I still use the one a day because that seems to be the healthy, the moderate, and then anything that anybody that drank more. So we threw this in and we just, I just wanted to see who were the healthier drinkers as far as <laughs> cognition was concerned. Because I had read some papers that drinking might be preventing Alzheimer's disease. So I was like, what's <laughs> going on here? I was like, let's explore this here. And what we found out was um, basically that our healthiest, as far as cognitive outcomes were concerned, was our moderate healthy drinkers. Hmm. So there's like a normal decline that happens in old age. We don't reach our peak cognitive peak till our adulthood like 20s or 30s and at that point we kind of trying to stay even we even kind of improve until 65 and at 65 we have decline when severe decline happens that's dementia or Alzheimer's right, disease right. but we have like a this negative kind of trajectory and basically caused by change in speed speed ability our ability to do things fast enough process things fast enough those right. really okay. severely decline so hence our cognitive ability but our verbal ability which is a kind of just a building block like our language just seems to increase over time and everything else that declines is basically declined by our processing speed. So that's the normal. So what we were finding out with drinking was that this normal decline, that relative decline we were seeing, we weren't seeing. We were actually almost seeing improvement. And they were so right. nervous about this. So we see our abstainers, which was also really nerve-wracking for us, declining a normal range, and our heavier drinkers declining at a kind of a normal range. And then we see our healthy drinkers kind of not declining and sometimes improving. And this wasn't across, but there's a certain ability, so verbal ability, some spatial ability. But the general trend was, even if it was significant, that there was, it seemed to be our healthier drinkers were doing really well. And the literature, a lot of literature says that's because of income and education and the wine drinkers and this, that. So we looked at wine, didn't make a difference what they were drinking. Was it liquor, beer? Really? No effect. Wow. And then we looked at, huh. uh, so it, and it didn't even run proportion because that was one of the biggest arguments the, that that's what's happening. No, it wasn't wine because the whole idea was wine and education. So we control for education income, thinking that you know we have these high income, high educated drinking wine, socializing with each other, and that's what was driving this cognition. Right. Mm, we control for education. We controlled for income. Nothing. Huh. We still see this improvement. So all of a sudden, I became dedicated to like disproving myself. I was like, this can't be because. My heritage, I'm Muslim, my heritage is Muslim. The whole idea is no alcohol. Alcohol is bad for you. Of course, yeah. So I'm like, what's what What did I do wrong here? Like, why is this mm. showing up? So we found it a couple of times. And I published it, and then they didn't pick it up then. But then I did the study, the same kind of study in the Framingham Heart Study, which is this big cardiovascular study uh, done up in 
Massachusetts, I can New England. Right yeah, yeah, New yeah, England yeah. area. And then I had a grad student working on that data, and so he's looking at cognitive outcomes again, and so this is right after my paper came out, and I said, can you do, can we do the same study using your data, and I want to see what happens, and the same thing happened. Huh. Our healthy drinker, which is one to seven, was the healthiest as far as cognitive outcomes, and we did it again. So using the same study, but then we looked at like hippocampal volume and stuff like that. And oh wow! We were, so we were consistently finding this effect, and then of course, we—I mean, we were looking at the literature, and the literature was identifying very similar trends. Hmm. So now, so we just submitted a grant to NIAH, and I'm—I'm I'm doing these analyses again, and I'm trying to again still disprove myself. So when the Framingham study got—I <laughs> love that. <laughs> yeah. So when the Framingham study got published, our editors did our job when we did their papers. We're like, we do not want to recommend drinking. We're going to be very weary of this. So be very, like, so our discussion section, we address the issue that we're not recommending drinking based on our results. We're just saying that if you're drinking, you don't necessarily have to quit. So we're very cautious of this. And then, of course, Yahoo picked it up. And the title is always drink for cognitive, you know, prevent Alzheimer's with drinking. And, like, some of the comments were like, this had to be funded by beer distributors. This is so irresponsible. Yeah. And... And we knew going in, like when we, my student did the interview and I did the interview, that we just never wanted to say that the, the drinking was healthy. Like we, we were very, we tried to be very clear about this. Yeah. But I mean, the whole idea here is that you don't necessarily have to quit drinking if you're drinking at healthy levels. So now, so I just submitted a grant to NIH, again trying to prove the same thing that we found, um, using the Framingham study and using. Now the HRS, which is the Health Retirement Study. Okay. So using two studies at the same time hmm. to create, because NIH is now interested in rigor, but to do a cross comparison to make sure, so a more diverse, so HRS is a huge sample, Framingham is a smaller sample. So doing a cross comparison, but now including social factors is one of the aspects. Is it that we're talking to people when we're drinking? Is it that we're socializing when we're drinking that's driving? Hmm. So... There's a lot of things that you should do to be healthy, right? One of the th right. other list thing is be social. Have friends. Talk to people. Don't be lonely. Humans um, are social Yeah, animals. the social yeah. benefit really... Yeah. Constantly, we find this as a predictor of positive health outcomes. So we're like, is it the social? Like, are people, like, drinking and then talking to others and drinking and hmm. feeling more social ease? So we wanted to throw that in. But the other thing we wanted to also throw in was the sustainer group. Like, we're finding them almost to be our worst groups. And that just goes, and we're like just like, why? Like, what are we doing here wrong? And so what we want to do is disaggregate our, our abstainers into chronic abstainers, people that have been not drinking their whole life. These are people that religiously or just decided not to drink versus people that quit drinking. I was going to say, because recovering alcoholics yes. have a much so you different... would think. So as I speak to you now, it's like, duh, why didn't we do this before? But this is how science evolves. Yeah. We want to split this group. We're going to split this group and then compare the effects. Because mm -hmm. our hypothesis is that the acute drinkers or the people that abstainers that just quit recently or in old age is because they fell or their doctors told them not to do it and this or that or this or that and now compare the results and hmm. still see if our healthy drinkers emerge and then also compare the social benefits and see if our healthy drinkers still emerge. Hmm. I want to prove that it wasn't the alcohol, but it might still be the healthy drinkers. There's something going on. So yes, there can be something going on. And one of the mechanisms is inflammation. So I'm also working in Baltimore at a, in, a, in a study, also looking at alcohol consumption rates and hip fracture patients and trying to figure out 
what drinking did for their recovery. So how does alcohol affect people? It puts people at ease when it's done at the healthy level. It's a stress reliever. It helps people socialize. Sometimes it releases social tension. But biologically, it also reduces inflammation. And inflammation is basically your body's reaction to insult or injury. So you're, you're kind of basically relaxing the body from having a constant level in. Because anything, I mean, if you believe in any biological aging, we're like constantly being hit by insults that are degrading us, really causing increased inflammation, right? right? Well, even just like, you know, tapping a finger on the table is exactly. going to have some small Some impact, kind of yeah. impact, right? I always tell my children, again, who are constantly hitting their heads, I'm like, you're <laughs> increasing your inflammation. you got to stop it. Your body's going to be fighting all the time. <laughs> Let's just stop the head injuries. But um, they're both fine. <laughs> so I'm working with this group. So we have live data now. People come in for a hip fracture. So we looked at alcohol. And what we're finding is that people that are, and this is unpublished data. We're still working on this. But we're, we're finding trends of the people that are hip fractures, older adults, these are like 65 plus, mm -hmm. if not older than that. We found that people that resumed drinking during that time or that were drinkers actually were feeling better. That's that's oh shocking for a number of reasons. So we're just talking about moderate drinking. Right, okay. So we're talking about community samples. So these are non... So of all the samples that we've dealt with, so a lot of the research has dealt with abusive drinkers and treatment of abusive drinkers. Right. Using this the public health lens and the community lens, we're only dealing with non-abusive drinkers. So I, I'll just clarify moderate, even though it's a one to seven a week, that doesn't mean seven on one day and Never. abstaining no. six days of the week. That's yes, yes. one a day. One yeah. a day. We're okay. just one a day, just like a vitamin, one a day. <laughs> Basically, what we're seeing is the benefit of that one drink a day person. And we saw this in hip recovery. And we think we're seeing trends of it right now. And literature has seen trends in it. And we think the way that it's working is outside of the social and the psychological, like social ease factor. Mm -hmm. It could also be reducing inflammation, which helps the process of health, hip recovery. It's fascinating. And so we're seeing trends of this. We're looking at this. We're getting more biological markers to see if it's actually indeed the inflammation is what's going on. It's tricky work too, I think, um, because of the stigma attached to it, like mm -hmm. you said. I mean... Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, actually, you know, you, you see a lot of sensationalized things that, especially coming from the sciences reported in the media, just mm -hmm. completely misconstrued. I can imagine yeah, your we work. Yeah, were very I worried. Mean, yeah. I mean, for the longest time, I never told my mother what I was studying. Really? Yeah, I was kind of worried. I was just worried. And then... I, I do get that. I and do then, get that. And then, I, and I, then I finally understood that it's the healthy effect. And I think what most religions, the ones that are anti-alcohol or say no alcohol, is basically the whole idea of drunkenness. And my research is basically saying drunkenness is bad. Research yeah. has constantly said, we agree with religion. Drunkenness is bad. But we're not saying. And, and we also understand the whole idea of not starting at all. Because there are some populations that are to have the you know, addictions. To, addictions right. They sh should definitely not be drinking at all. It's that population in between that are not addictive, you know, right. and don't have any risk factors that can maybe actually profit from the benefits. Right. And that's the majority of the population is there. We just have to make sure that that population, you know, we fully understand kind of the investment related before we have any kind of recommendation. And, right. and if any recommendations are made from me, it'll be the whole idea that drinking one a day does not cause significant harm. 
it will never be start drinking one yeah, day. It's not I mean, like, all right, just, get those shots. Yeah, yeah, it won't be like exercise 30 minutes. It won't be anything. Like, it'll just be the idea that you don't necessarily have to ask your one drinker a day to quit. And you don't necessarily have to quit if you only drink one, one a, day. a day. Right. And unless you experience consequence. And that's what we always say. Even if you're drinking one a day, but you experience loss of memory or interactions, that's even too much for your body to handle. So that's kind of, I think, where it could end up, but mm-hmm. nothing more than that, I think. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because each, like you said, mm-hmm. each individual, each body type is different. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, it, it is interesting, I think, for the religions like Islam that, you know, you don't drink alcohol. I wouldn't say that they, you know, probably would adapt if, if the no. science would be going, because there are other alternatives to exactly. inflammation and stuff like that. Exactly. But it is an interesting option to have as well that... Um, it doesn't need to be this kind of, as long as you're not associating it with the belligerence. That's what and I the, mean. And the drunkenness. We would say we're in line with religion. That drunkenness right. is bad. Exactly. We'll agree with you. Yeah. But we just don't know if abstention is necessarily the way right. to go. But that's actually also how uh, treatment of alcoholism is going too. With drinking, as long as you don't have an addictive quality, we could decrease you to one a day. But we don't have to make you quit as long right. as it could be manageable. So that's change in treatment. Yeah. It is, uh, uh, I'm very interested in what the next, like, 20 years of treatment yeah. across all kind of fields of addictive substances and, and behaviors would be, I mean. I mean, just seeing it as a disease, which is a change now, I think will be a one step. And then understanding, I mean, there's no healthy level. We will not see anything. There's no healthy level of drinking. And right. as far as the addictive researchers, there's no healthy level of illicit drugs, including marijuana. Right. It's just, you know, it's just... Legalization for medical treatment may be beneficial, Yeah, is how we feel, but for the global population, we do not necessarily feel anything that is a cognitive stimulant or changes somebody's thinking could be long in the long term be positive. I mean, again, like you said, there's other ways to relieve stress. That shouldn't be the go-to way. Exactly. You know, to each his own. If mm-hmm. you're an adult, you can make your own decisions. Yeah. But at the same time, mm-hmm. so I, I just want to jump really fast mm-hmm. uh, back yeah. to the study and just ask how you guys actually tested for cognitive function. I mean, oh yeah, so cognitive testing is the core of psychology and personality testing. I mean, just think about Freud. This is all the core. So there's like all these measurements out there that do cognitive testing. And Seattle Longitudinal Studies embedded in units that they've been using since 1956 and have been building wow. upon it. So there's a whole field on cognitive aging. And then there's a whole field on cognitive measurement. Oh, and it's not just about one question. And it's, it's so actually in the Seattle Longitudinal Study, there's almost 21, I think there's 21 cognitive tests based on spatial ability, based on executive functioning, based on perceptual speed. Wow. Just And so, and Framingham does it the same. They have a neurological, psychological battery. Mm. And so an extensive tens, uh, testing of extensive uh, domains like verbal memory. So basically the basic areas are memory, spatial ability, executive functioning, which is problem solving, and then s- conceptual speed. Right. And they just kind of kind of test these over time. So a lot of studies, the Seattle Longitudinal Study, the Framingham Study, I, th- I think the HRS does it too, uh, the MacArthur study. So all these studies have an extensive battery of cognition to get at the idea. And it's not usually just one test. It's usually right. three tests to measure one domain because Man. because the whole idea of psychological measurement is error. And you want to decrease error by having multiple indicators of something. Right. So all these studies have reliable cognitive measures. But, of course, if you're testing for Alzheimer's, they were very sophisticated measurement. But sure. we're as sophisticated as them. Huh. And... You brought up a good point, though. 
we looked at cognition and one of the strongest risk factors to Alzheimer's is ApoE, genetic, some genetic risk factors. And one of my papers actually did find that alcohol functions differently if you have a genetic risk factor for alcohol. It, if you do, it actually doesn't show a benefit. So wow. we're not just talking about wow. behavior and level, we're talking about genetical risk factors. We're talking about cognitive outcomes being influenced by cognitive genetic risk factors hmm. and behavior influencing that. So it's just, it's not easy. And so we are going to try to look at APOE in our next iteration. So it looks like the health, healthy drinking only affects people that don't have the risk factor for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. I mean, that so is... that's just a whole other interlay in there just to show you how complicated this, this issue is. You could drink healthy either way, but you might obtain benefit if you don't have the APOE risk factor. Right. That's it's only one study. So I'm just going to say that when it's just one study, it's not science. It's not empirical. It's not, it's, yeah. it's, we have to replicate it at this point. Right. But we are seeing indications that genetical risk factors will change this phenomenon. Hmm. I have to say, you mentioned this earlier, and, and it was in the study as well, but I really liked uh, in the discussion section, mm -hmm. uh, obviously it's something that you have to incorporate anyway, but it's just something that I, mm -hmm. I like reading, that the kind of factors that you guys were were including, uh, you know, the reasons of drinking, as we were just talking mm -hmm. about, but um, race, income, inequality, uh, mm -hmm. well, income inequality, mm -hmm. but also education um, and self-reporting. Mm -hmm. um, those, those are all very interesting parameters to set because... Well, I know you said you did test for them, and they didn't make a difference, actually, um, in, in that initial... Yeah, they didn't make... I mean, they didn't basically eliminate the healthy drinking effect. Right, That's what we're trying to do. But we didn't look at group differences to see if the effect is different in maybe people with a certain education versus not a certain... So we haven't stratified right. anything. So... We did stratify for gender, though. And that... Actually, I guess I should have said that. That was one way that I kind of got interested in the process, was that we, I realized that um, there's gender differences in cognitive decline. It seems that estrogen seems to play an effect on cognitive decline. So I was like, oh, so there's gender things huh. going on. So we did actually find a gender effect on the Seattle Longitudinal Study, basically seeing that even though healthy drinking was positive for both men and women, it seems to maybe be stronger affecting women. Really? And, and, and I will say that because I think because once women hit menopause, there's a decline in estrogen. And what we've seen is that estrogen, the decline in estrogen seems to parallel decline in cognition. That's so it's so wow. so there's this hormonal effect. So one of my theories again in grad school before we found out the problems with hormone replacement therapy was to just give women hormone replacement therapy to prevent Alzheimer's. And then we found out there were it increased risk of cardiovascular disease. It increased risk yeah, of cancer. You, yeah. So all of a sudden I was like floored and I was like, I can't even study this when I leave because we already found out it wasn't true. And then but the hmm. whole process showed that this this parallel was going on with the decline. But. We can't really study that now that we know the risk of HRT. Right. So instead of giving HRT, maybe giving menopausal women healthy alcohol, maybe overcoming the lack of estrogen that we're seeing. Like that? that there was a small, very small indication of that in the Seattle Longitudinal Study. That's the only thing that we stratified for. Um, but there could be other stratifications there, but we haven't really gone into that. But that's a whole other that, that, that's a whole other area of study. Well, I'd be curious if the findings for that do show that indeed yeah. it, it would be positive because yeah, you market yourself right there, like that's exactly. That's... I have a K word right now from NIH, and now it's a matter of it's my last year, and I have to think about the next grant. And there's so many possibilities, hmm. and there's epidemiological possibilities, there's treatment possibilities. There's so many questions to answer, and it's an exciting time to be in the field. So it's it's good where I am. Mm. 
it's really confusing, I think, for drinkers and non-drinkers right now, and especially public health, you know, recommenders and stuff. But for me, right now, there's a lot of questions to answer. Uh, one of the focus I have right now are alcohol and medication interactions. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what are the major contributors? And what we don't know is, so on drugs.com, we actually went to drugs.com, our scientific exploration. What are our major drugs that interact with alcohol? Hmm. We've identified a hand, like a major. So they do a so major, a minor. Downers, yeah. yeah. So a lot of cardiovascular drugs and a lot of psychostimulants. So there's two really? cases of population. So people with cardiovascular disease are at risk. People with mental health disorders seem to be at the greatest risk, including sleep disorders. Right. Because they have the major contributors to interacting with the medication. But what we don't know, even though these have been chemically classified as the major interactors with alcohol, we don't actually know the outcomes hmm. of these populations that take these medications and consume alcohol. What happens to them over the long term? Maybe they don't have an interaction where they end up in an ER. Maybe their cognitive aging is different than the population that doesn't drink and take those medications. We just don't even know the outcomes of people that consume alcohol and take certain medications. And I've asked, actually, pharmacists, I'm like, what happened here? Like, why don't we know the healthy practices? And they said, basically, the drugs increase the sex exponentiation that the safety practices just haven't been able to keep up. First of all, clinical trials aren't done with older adults who are the largest consumer of medications. And then to know the long-term effects... Wait, effect, clinical trials aren't done with older adults? No, they're done with healthy people with no other disorders for the most part. Is that a liability issue or is it just... That's just how clinical trials are done. That's the methodology of clinical trials. You get, you can only know the true pre effect of a drug if it has no other interactors. Like you, if they don't have any other interactions, no other diseases going on, taking no, you want to know shocking. the sole effect. So wow. most drugs are tested on young, healthy people and not even for the long term. They're acutely tested over like maybe a Three year. Three weeks. Oh, wow. Older adults sometimes are taking like nine to 10 medications. Explanations with age, eight, when you're 88 medications, yeah. you're nine medications. And then they're usually taking others. So we don't even know the effects of interacting with other medications. One of the major studies have shown oh that the greatest way to increase longevity is decline your medications that you're taking in old age to like one or two. If that shows, if that's, that's basically the wow. implications of that study, even though they didn't test this, is that we just don't understand the long-term impacts of medication and what they are doing to individuals. The reason that we don't have the medication review is that one doctor is prescribing this, one doctor is prescribing this. Right. Nobody knows who's prescribing what, so they're taking like two cholesterol inhibitors, like two of these and five Nitro of these. And, yeah. and nobody knows, nobody stops one once they're started, even though. So we have all these like cases, basically, of people, how are they living with all these medications? And then finally, somebody does a medication review and reduces them, which is the a great predictor of longevity, like increase in longevity. Huh. So now it's part of the system, but are people doing it? Are people understanding it? And we're not even comparing that with lifestyle issues like alcohol. So there's this whole level of complexity, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it. So when, when you know, you hear a friend goes to the doctor and the doctor gives, you know, they're on medication and the doctor gives them the new one mm -hmm. and they start feeling different or acting different or something like that. And they, they sense it and the doctor's like, okay, I will just take you off it. That's their kind of way to sift through what medications are going to be. There is no actual clinical way that they're doing it right now, testing it in any way. We, they're just we, doing it we as need a they drug go. registry. That is, that we is need nuts. a drug registry. That's nuts. Where all, a lot, so a lot of medication studies have actually shown the best way to find out what medications people are on is to do a brown bag. Do you know what that is? No, I don't. Actually, tell your older adult to put all their medications in a brown bag and show up to the appointment. And then go through them. 
Because they have samples. They are taking, that's the best way to find out what drugs people mm. are taking. Not self-report because people forget. Right. And sometimes they hide. And then sometimes they have samples they don't count. Just bring in all the drugs that you take. I will say, we are seeing a reversal in longevity. And we don't know mm. why. We don't. I mean, we think it's behavioral, right? but these complications that we're referring to here could be part of it. Like, we've advanced so much and increased longevity to the point where maybe our methodologies aren't the safest, and we're kind of almost reversing at hmm. this point. And some of the literature has basically identified that mental health problems is one of the reasons we're reversing, but I think behavioral issues is part of it, too. Well, I think... Uh, yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of change in just the social structures that are happening in general these mm -hmm. days. But yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, it's I, there's so many levels, and I'm just talking, and I'm just talking about alcohol with all these things. Right. We're not even talking about anything else. Well, that's actually what I wanted to get into now, just before before we run out of time. Mm -hmm. So, another part of research, as you know, we we've mentioned, but we're alluding to, is mm -hmm. um, substance abuse with prescription medication. Yeah. And this has been a pretty contentious subject in the news recently. Though I would say what gets more of the notice is the uh, substance abuse with young people. And pop stars. And and pop stars and mm -hmm. what's not. And mm -hmm. uh, now what what is the effect on the adult population? Is it different? I mean, is it is it the same number of abuse? Uh, what we're finding it is the same. It's increasing. It's increasing prevalence. So you're referring to substance me prescription misuse, right? Right. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yes, we're we're seeing that there's been a sharp increase in fatality related to prescription medication use and misuse, hmm. and it includes older adults, obviously, because of the just because of the prevalence of medications involved. But we've also found the other side of the story is that older adults are also experiencing abuse related to their medications that other people, younger people in their population, their families, and their generations, including clinical personnel like nursing home nurses really? and stuff, are taking some of their multi-medications and also misusing it. So this is a two, this is almost like the sandwich generation medication problem. That the increase in medications that older adults are taking are a problem for them, obviously, and problem for anybody around them at this hmm. point. And yes, kind so of like a secondhand smoke, in a sense. something like that, where it's just causing a lot of problems. I drive about an hour each way to get to work. Oh man! So I listen to a lot of NPR, and one of Me the too. recent <laughs> ways that they're showing—I forgot what drug they were talking about. It was an addictive control drug, and what they said that they were wanting to put it in the just like a birth control pill, put it in the skin. So it's not person-induced control; it's just monitored through this implant that's put in. So you can't share it. It can't be sold, it can't be taken too much, and it can't be taken too less. So you take this, you put it as an implant, and it gives you just the right amount. Could you imagine if your whole medication regimen is placed? I know there's, it is scary, implants are scary. But this is where technology, I think, can really take care of this problem, especially with addictions. To control addiction requires an addictive medication, especially a pain stimulant. Yeah. Obviously, you're setting up a population for Harm. Well, I mean, how many how many stories is it that to get off, you know, to quit smoking, someone picked up another addiction? You know, like, exactly. you know, it's, it's one after another after another. If you have an addictive personality, it's not the substance, it's the personality. It's exactly. something else that needs to be focused on and exactly. worked on. So, I mean, it, I see it could solve a lot of problems. It could probably create a lot of problems, too, that I can't foresee. Yeah. Based on the public health problems that we're seeing right now with medication addictions, I feel like it could resolve a lot of issues. 
You know, it is interesting. Uh, on the one hand, while I agree, implants mm -hmm. and kind yes. of the, the future of AI and mm -hmm. you know robotics and, and humans is slightly disconcerting and somewhat terrifying. However, when you have innovations like that, and you know what, it doesn't even need to be an implant. It could be a wristband that yeah. you know is completely locked up and controlled, like just something. It, it's something. I I do agree. My only concern, I guess, is you know you have this. Um, we mentioned the income inequality gap where. You know, that would be fine for people that could afford an implant and surgery and checkups and stuff like that. But, you know, if if we don't have universal health care in this country or if we're still, you know, it, there, there's a lot of different facets that go into this. So I am pro-universal health care. Right. Because I don't think there should be disparities in treatment. Me neither. And Thanks. I almost think it's unethical to prescribe somebody a treatment for something that's cheaper. Hmm knowing that it's not as effective as the something that's more expensive. We should not have a system like that. And I understand that that's what's happening, that we have, and it's mostly based on process, like the test somebody gets and then the surgery, you right. know, and then the ability to diagnose somebody and then ultimately we should have the same surgeries going in. But we don't. We have huge disparities in treatment. We're not even talking about treatment outcomes Yeah. in treatment. We're not set up that way. I know we're not set up that way. But I do think we should be thinking that it's unethical for us to prescribe or to recommend something just because it's cheaper, knowing that there's mm -hmm. a more effective treatment out there. Why waste cost on the cheaper treatment? Just implement the expensive treatment and stop worrying about the aftercare. I mean, that is so important. It goes back to the, the mm -hmm. whole conversation we had earlier about prevention, which is... In the long run, this is going to save you so yeah. much more money if you invest just that little bit more just at like the, the beginning. Yeah, just like the gym membership, the one once a month massage appointment, and the once a month stress management appointment. I mean, I mean, could you imagine? It's it's a no brainer, but it's a, you know it's implementing and trying to change the system that's already in place mm -hmm. and. It is, it is difficult, but I, yeah, I, I think we're on the same yeah. page on that, that if we have countries that can provide universal health care for their citizens, you know. We have uh, global epidemiological research has constantly shown America spends the most money yep. on medical technology, but we have some of the poorest health outcomes, yeah. including natal outcomes. Like, really? Yes. We are I didn't know that. awful. That is, that is shocking to hear, actually. Yeah, we are just, we are not at par with our partners huh. as far as health outcomes are concerned across the board and and that says that there's a flaw in our system hmm. well that hasn't been addressed it seems no not at all i mean because it asked for an overhaul and nobody wants to do the overhaul <laughs> uh, on the other hand it's just building up and up and up yeah i just don't understand i don't understand either so you are actually involved with Promoting Prescription Drug Safety, the, yeah. the Prescription Drug Safety Project. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah. what PDS is and, and the work you do? Yeah, so so we have this campaign. We're doing them in rural uh, pharmacies in Virginia right now. There's a lot of limited resources in that population, right. substance abuse, mental health included. Basically, we're doing pre-tests, like understanding their knowledge of the issues, showing them our campaign, and then doing a post-test right there hmm. to see if we change any kind of understanding about it. And then what we're doing is we're doing three-month calls to see if they still kind of remember. So I always think now media needs its own IRB, ethical IRB, 
Yeah, I, I think I, things are thrown out without people understanding the consequences. So I'll just say uh, IRB is Institutional Review yes. Board, just for listeners out so there. So there's all these campaigns and things thrown out, and nobody's ever tested them. So I really, my whole point of this was not just creating the campaign, but testing it to make sure I'm causing no harm. And that's the whole idea of research is cause mm -hmm. no harm. So I have all these general public health messages. Yeah. I vetted them through pharmacists. We vetted them through older adults that we weren't insulting. The biggest issue with health campaigns is making sure we don't like offend anybody so we vetted them and now we're implementing it looking at the effects of it and basically what we're seeing is based on planet we're not done yet is that we are changing people's understanding but now we want to know if we're changing behavior mm. and that's kind of be by follow-up kind of so we under so we created awareness right we think we're changing health like drinking practices we're still kind of figuring that out well that's that's a very long term exactly yeah. so behavior takes so it's always first is thinking then is behavior right and I think I want my follow-up study, and that's what I'm thinking about for October, is actually looking at long-term effects. Are we changing cognition? Are we changing mortality? Are we actually changing ER visits? Mm. I want to know. I've always been very interested in health planning, or healthy planning, or healthy messaging. Mm -hmm. And so we created this campaign on preventing alcohol medication interaction. And the whole idea is understanding the symptoms behind it, understanding the risk behind it. I. I have to say, I wanted to do a safe drinking campaign, and there was too much stigma. So we combined it with medication, so people kind of understood kind of the context of unsafe drinking. And right. so, and we were partnered with pharmacists, and of course, this is all NIH funded. But we what we help people do is, first of all, recognize the risk that it could happen to anybody that drinks alcohol, and then understand if they are at risk. You know, what are the signs, and then we also recommend a plan, like what they need to do as far as if they experience an AMI risk. So we want to increase the conversation. So we also say we, they need to talk to their doctor mm -hmm. and their pharmacist. We want to increase communication, help them understand the guidelines of safe drinking, which is no more than recommended drinking, which is no more than one a day. Because right. we, we are seeing increasing trends of drinking in older adulthood. Really? We Basically, we people used to decline in drinking, and with the baby boomers, we've seen no decline. <laughs> people don't even know the recommendations. We know with retirement communities, we've actually heard of a frat kind of context. No way. Yes. Uh, we see a lot of drinking, a lot of medication wow. mixing. Um, Jeez. It just kind of goes back. And we actually, they actually need safe sex health education too. Uh, I knew about the that. safe sex. But uh... it's the same thing with drinking. It's a very frat mentality. Huh. And I'm not saying all retirements, of course. No, but, but... But it happens. Yeah. So this is, the idea is to prevent AMIs, but th the idea also is to create an approach to understanding intervention. Instead of throwing out recommendations and then 10 years later saying, we were wrong. Yeah, by, by the way. By the way, we were wrong. <laughs> but I know a lot of people like argue that Medicaid, like things aren't approved fast enough. Yeah. And so we're also beating, fighting the clock. With ADD medication and stuff like that, back in you know the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a whole big thing that some of the stuff wasn't being tested. They're yeah. just throwing it out there. Yeah. And then now we have, luckily, a lot of the kids weren't too badly messed up, but there were definitely some instances in where people were kind of like, well, why didn't we know about these side yeah. effects? You know? so, so we're fighting two battles here, yeah. like getting people what they need versus understanding the consequences. And I know the answer is in between, but I guess what I'm saying is that even if once something gets approved, <clears throat> we really need to continue monitoring, but it does cost money. Yeah. And that's what this all is about. Always comes back to it. And I never understood that. And I'm so sad to say that it is. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to wrap this up. I just have maybe one Okay, question. one. Okay. All right, so basically, I'll just, I'll end it on this. 
for all my guests that come on, I like to ask them, you have a platform now, being on this podcast mm-hmm. and having an audience, is there anything that you would like to say about prescription drug abuse or alcohol mm-hmm. abu- uh, alcohol consumption, um, or uh, the work you do, or PDS, anything, it could be about, you know, your kids or your dog, you know, it, it, either yeah. or. But so, I was at a forum this summer, and I, and I said the one thing that if I was to effect on people and I think it was this whole idea of sense of agency like giving people their control back like do your own research kind of understand things and work kind of accordingly I all these people wait for doctors they just I think they wait too long to practice healthy behaviors and when there is doubt about something to look into it um us as researchers we're really trying our best to make sure we throw out the best practices and stuff and they should really take that into heart and control like i i always think that people need health coaches so i i already told you what we need as a society like we need the exercise and we need that massage and the meditation right but i think we also need to like take our power kind of back that (laughs) it's not just about somebody healing us it's about us healing ourselves the basic our messages should be not about prescription medications it shouldn't it should be about healthy lifestyles and we that's what our schools of public health are all about is healthy lifestyles and we really need to make that message stronger i think we should all be setting ourselves up healthy and ready to take on aging i'm just uh, i i know saying <laughs> and there is this sense of denial i think that goes with aging where people you know it, it is it's a tough thing to admit you know well, you're you're slowly decaying if mm-hmm. you want to be morbid about it but you gotta face the facts and if you do i think you would be take it on like exactly. take on your own like, aging take on your own health and be like be that person right in the beginning and not saying I am I have the best health practices but understand at least have a basic understanding yeah, of, of exactly. what a healthy lifestyle is mm-hmm. and try to promote it in your yourself and your families and everything yeah Dr. Zanjani thank you very very much for coming on this was great I think this is the longest episode I've done so fantastic Dr. Faika Zanjani is an associate professor in the Department of Behavioral and Community Health at University of Maryland's School of Public Health thanks very much thanks for having me Alrighty, everybody, that is our show for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I certainly did. And if you haven't listened to the first part of the conversation between Dr. Zanjani and myself, I would highly suggest you go back and listen to episode number 22 and get the first bit of context. Other than that, I will say don't forget to like and share The Imposter on Facebook, SoundCloud, Follow me on Twitter at Another Fogel, that's F-O-G-E-L. And other than that, don't forget to tell your friends, family, anybody you think might like The Imposter about this lovely podcast, if I say so myself. And you can also find us on the iTunes Music Store, keyword, The Imposter Podcast. And that is it. We will see you next week with a brand new episode. But until then, have a fantastic weekend. All right, everyone. Toodaloo.